Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Richard, do you remember the name Frederick Wortham? Well, of course I don't. <laughs> but, I, but I did look it up, Jim. Frederick Wortham was a psychiatrist who started a big crackdown on comic books way back in the 1950s, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. In 1948, he wrote an article called Horror in the Nursery about how comic books were corrupting the morals and mental health of American youth. Too much violence and sex on those pages. Pretty soon there were hearings on Capitol Hill and the comic book companies were forced to set up a system to regulate themselves. No more werewolves or zombies or skimpy outfits allowed. The question we're asking today is, could something like this happen again? Our guest says yes. And we explore the idea that the backlash against social media and big tech could be a wild overreaction. Tapping the brakes on the tech panic with Robbie Suave. <laughs> Of all the ideas to do something about big tech, repealing Section 230 is the very worst. It's an unthinkable disaster. I can't believe so many people on both sides of the aisle like this idea. It is really bad. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? From the earliest days of How Do We Fix It, we've been looking into concerns about the impact of social media. Is it driving political polarization? Is it affecting the mental health of young people? And do big technology firms have way too much power? Have companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter become monopolies? Do their algorithms increase both personal anxiety and political extremism? Mark Zuckerberg and other big tech executives have been called to Congress multiple times to defend themselves, and politicians across the political spectrum are proposing various reforms. Our guest today is Robbie Suave, a senior editor at Reason, the magazine of libertarian thought. Robbie's new book is called Tech Panic, Why We Shouldn't Fear Facebook and the Future. Robbie joins us from Washington, D.C. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thanks for having me. Great to talk with you. So it seems like everyone from Donald Trump to the New York Times thinks big tech is the cause of pretty much everything wrong with our society today. Tribal politics, cancel culture, teenage mental illness. 
So are you saying they're all wrong? I am indeed saying they're all wrong. I, I don't know how else to put it. They are wrong. There are certain uh, legitimate problems with big tech, with social media. Social media is a new communication innovation that has positives and negatives. The negatives are very well covered and I think have been overhyped, have been overcharacterized uh, by everyone from the mainstream media to the right-wing media, to right-wing politicians, to left-wing politicians, etc. And the considerable positives of social media are almost entirely overlooked in our national conversation about what to do about Facebook, Google, Amazon, and others. I, I don't reject every single one of the problems that people have raised about social media. I don't think they're all ill-founded, but the solutions put forth to deal with them actually are pretty universally bad. And that's an important thing to keep in mind because it, it's one thing to point out issues with new technology. It's another to propose these sweeping new uh, government policies or regulations or breaking up the companies, everything else. Well, we'll get into some of those arguments a little bit later, but let's take some of the objections to social media uh, one at a time. Uh, one is corrupting our elections. Uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about the 2020 election. Back in 2016, a lot of Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, grumbled loudly that the Russians had hijacked our elections using Facebook. You dug into that issue pretty deeply in your reporting what do you find? Yeah, I'm just very, very unpersuaded by that narrative that was very popular in the mainstream media for a while after the, after the 2016 election. And then, then was sort of revived in a perverse way by the right wing media after the 2020 election when Trump loses. So it is true that Russian agents did try to interfere and did uh, do some uh, sort of inappropriate activities on Facebook, creating these fake groups, these fake accounts aimed at influencing people, but it was a very, very, very weak influence campaign. And in fact, when stacked against the amount of money that the campaigns that the candidates spent themselves on Facebook advertising, it's a drop in the bucket. Um, you know, these were not very sophisticated control type things. There's no evidence the right voters were targeted. Again, th this election hinged on, you know, thousands of voters in, in Michigan and Pennsylvania uh, of your sort of rural, uh, working class, older, blue collar union Democrats who broke for Trump unexpectedly. I don't really think this is a demographic being duped by Russians on Facebook. If anything, this is a demographic that listens to a lot of cable news talk radio that was all, that was 24 hours, seven days a week, pro-Trump campaign commercial. But the result was very close. And it wasn't just about people who voted for Trump. It was about people not voting for Hillary. Is it possible that in some states that were very tight, that, that maybe this did make some difference? I, I think Facebook's cumulative effect on the election certainly made some difference. Uh, the, the sort of existing media communications apparatus is so biased, so political, so partisan that Facebook spin doesn't seem nearly as compelling or powerful or as likely to persuade. Uh, I, I think, you know, they allowed some bad actors to be on the platform for too long in a couple cases. It doesn't look that vast to me. In some cases, these companies can also shut down certain conversations, though. You know, when the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop came out just before the 2020 election, 
Twitter locked the paper's account and uh, Twitter and Facebook both suppressed discussions about whether COVID-19 was the result of a lab leak when that was dubbed a conspiracy theory. Should any company have that much power to limit the information we can see or what stories are considered legit? I agree. It is certainly the case that Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, uh, have, have taken down content that they ought to have left up. And in fact, they agree with that. They admitted that was a bad call. They apologized and said they got that wrong. Now, I don't think the impact of that was nearly as vast as people on the right claim. I, I've heard claims that, right, that swung the election for Biden, that they suppressed this story. I tend to think their act of suppressing this story made it have more far-reaching influence because while they did literally prevent you from on Twitter from sharing the story and on Facebook, they just turned it down. Then there were all these other stories about how social media was throttling these stories so then there was a, there was a, not only was there a confirmation, there was conversation about the Hunter Biden story, but then there was also conversation about how the powers that be don't want you to hear or read this story. I think it's a very classic example of the Streisand effect of, you know, trying to clamp down on something, actually making more people interested in it. This Streisand effect is a bit of internet ancient history when uh, somebody was posting uh, pictures shot from an airplane of Barbara Streisand's grand estate in Malibu or somewhere. And she actually sued them to get the pictures taken down. Of course, the act of suing them made this a an international story. So pretty soon every, everybody had seen right. these pictures of her of her grand grand estate. As you can probably tell, Robbie, Jim and I come from different sides of the political aisle. From my point of view, the, the ban on Donald Trump, which was an example of a private company acting on its own by, by Twitter, was pretty effective. I mean, he's no longer as big or as destructive a presence as he once was. What's your take on on the ability of these these companies to to ban people from their platforms? I mean, I think the actions that they took with respect to Donald Trump were pretty close to accurate. I mean, we can debate these things. Smart people could disagree on what sort of actions platforms should take about all sorts of about the Ayatollah, about terrorist groups, about like these are not always easy questions. Is it better to leave up information? It is better for people to hear it. But what if it's hateful? What if it incites violence? These are very difficult questions. With respect to Trump, I think you can make at least a plausible case that they handled it correctly. They gave him wide latitude during his presidency because he was the president. They left up content that I think if it was anyone else, they would have taken it down. And in fact, they were sued. Twitter was sued by groups saying this is hate speech and you, you, you're required under law to take this down. They used the existing law, Section 230, that Donald Trump once gotten rid of. They used that law, Twitter did, to say, no, we don't have to take down this content. Uh, and then at the end of his presidency, he, I, I think, you can make a very strong case that he crossed every last line that that he was morally responsible for what was happening at the Capitol. I covered the Capitol riots as a journalist. I was there. It was horrific. It is clearly his fault that he was stoking this anger and their decision to take him down because of that, I think, was perfectly defensible. In your book, you write, and I quote, it's important for governments not to freak out too much about the prevalence of terrorist content on social media. And Richard and I both looked at it and said, like, wow, I bet you're getting a lot of pushback on that. Yeah. Uh, and, and 
it is permissible for the government to intervene to you know like protect people's lives and and the the ability to foster um, violence and terrorism on social media is not something that the government should be forbidden from considering. Uh, but even then, it gets very complicated. There are uh, it is better for terrorist groups to plot terrorism on Facebook than to plot it elsewhere because when they plot it on Facebook, they all get caught. Uh, there have been studies bearing uh, this out. Um, and then, and also, you get into very you know thorny uh, discussions about well, what if it's a state actor that is engaged in sort of violent content? This is what happened in in um, Myanmar. The military dictatorship was using Facebook to sort of foster a genocide against the minority Muslim population, the Rohingya, uh, that was that was very successful and violent and horrific. Facebook probably should have done more in that case. Uh, but of course, that was the legitimate government. So should Facebook take down posts from the legitimate government? It gets very confusing and hard to hard to say. In the early days of the Internet, a lot of us assumed that it would be a wide open bazaar of different voices that many people who were unheard would be heard. But in the past 10 or 15 years, most of the information on the Web has wound up flowing through just a few channels, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and then, of course, Amazon uh, for commerce. Does that consolidation mean the tech giants have something close to monopoly power? I would first answer that by saying, if we're talking about the speech component, it just doesn't seem to me like there is a constriction of speech on the internet. You're right that there is just a couple of companies that are very powerful, but the, the, the conversation is more wide open than ever before. There are more, I mean, the, the, it's funny that conservatives are so mad at Facebook and Twitter all the time. Social media has been the best thing that has ever happened to uh, right of center, right wing publications. There's been a proliferation of an ability to share provocative, alternative, conservative, and far left and libertarian and all content that clashes with the aesthetic of the mainstream media, which used to have the stranglehold on the conversation, they have been benefited by social media. The, the conversation is all over the place. Uh, in terms of, are, are they monopolies? So they're not monopolies in the sense that all of these companies compete uh, maybe not Amazon, but Facebook competes as a social media service against Twitter. It competes as an advertising service against Google. It competes as a repository for your pictures with, you know, your actual physical yearbooks or something. I mean, it, it's monopoly over that service doesn't matter because you're not paying for it. The concern about a monopoly historically is it has all of this one resource that people need and no one else can compete. So then it can charge whatever price it wants for it. The, the, the users of these platforms are not harmed by their dominance uh, in, in that sense. They're not paying for the service. They are, they are the product. They're, they're, maybe Amazon is something of a monopoly in that it, I mean, in that it has no uh, close competitor, although there are other e-commerce sites that are doing quite well and, and, and are, are coming along. The prices on Amazon are really, we can, we can cheaply get affordable stuff because of Amazon and it's great and everyone loves it and it's like the most popular company on earth. So if this is what a monopoly is, monopolies are much less threatening than, 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 than we've been led to believe. A strong argument on the negative impact of social media comes from Jonathan Haidt, the social psychologist who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind and a former guest on How Do We Fix It? He's produced evidence linking the spike in adolescent mental illness, especially among girls, to the rise of Facebook and Instagram. 
I know you and he have discussed this some. What's your response? You know, obviously he is a a, a brilliant man who's been a source of inspiration to me, who I usually agree with. So I, I I'm all, I'm hesitant to disagree with him, but uh, I I do disagree with him on this. Uh, or maybe we're just we're we're evaluating the size of this problem differently. I also think we maybe just don't know the information that is trying to signal to us how bad social media is for teenagers' mental health. We're relying on surveys. We're relying on, you know, we, we can't actually measure that. So we're relying on what they're telling us. I've never said that social media is great for everyone or that if used in excess is good. I, I think probably there are people who are too addicted to their smartphones or who are too online or who, who, who or if all they can do is stare at more attractive people on Instagram and it makes them feel bad about their bodies. Uh, yes, that is a problem. And, and, and the certain, the internal Facebook data was showing that like, I think it was one or two out of five of the teenage girls were saying that yes, Instagram was making them feel depressed or having body issues. I think young people are much more open about their mental health. Um, I, I think it's become more in vogue or more fashionable even to be very open about how you're feeling internally that has largely been a good thing because historically we've been, this has been a problem with men. Men are reluctant to talk about their, their feelings and their, and their, their sadness. And if they're depressed or having a hard time, they don't speak up. And we've destigmatized talking about depression and trauma in a very good way. I think we might've gone a little bit too far because now young people often want to uh, identify as traumatized or depressed or triggered because it's, it helps you have credibility um, in activist circles uh, on the left, on college campuses in particular. So I have to wonder if we're not capturing some of that when we're asking young people if they're depressed. You could argue that's kind of glib. I mean, rates of teenage anxiety um, have gone up, according to most mental health experts. There's been a lot of suffering, and there's no question that people are really pretty horrible to each other on social media. Isn't this causing a great deal of pain to you, a lot of people? Don't you think people are people? miserable to each other in schools? I mean, school is a nightmare for many, but, but, maybe but most, maybe the majority private. of teenagers. I, I agree. It was, a mis it was miserable for right. me. So I, I, I take your point. the average teenage girl, <laughs> yeah. if yeah. school, you know, makes them want to kill themselves, they'll dramatically say yes. But so, this is playing out on a much bigger scale, right? On, on a much bigger stage. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of people probably have are having positive experiences on social media because that's where you interact with your friend. You can interact with a curated community of people whom you like and who validate you. And it, it probably, for people who are having a bad school experience, they're, they're I mean, this is how young people can set up communities, not even on necessarily Instagram or Facebook, but in forums or in other places um, where you can find like-minded people. I, I'm in a forum for people who love this one board game that I like, that I've, I've been contributing to this forum for 10 years. I've met some of these people eventually. They live all over the world. They've traveled to DC. I've met them. It's this great thing that only exists because of where the internet has evolved and what we're able to do on it now. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Robbie Suave. His new book is called Tech Panic. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to our interview. Let's pivot to some of the solutions that are being proposed to rein in the supposed excessive power of these companies. We could start with what might have been one of the first suggestions out there, which was to just use antitrust law to break them up. They're too powerful. What do you think? I so I'm obviously I'm against doing this ideologically because I don't think the government should have this power. Uh, separately, I don't think there's a good legal rationale based on the current understanding of antitrust uh, because there is not a harm to the consumer that can be proven. So you'd need to pass a new law, which I guess you could do, although that it just seems practically unlikely. 12 different Facebooks are going to have many of the same internal policies. If, if your problem is that Facebook takes down too much content, um, a, a company that Mark Zuckerberg has less control over is actually going to take down even more content. And also you might have the problem that then to compete with each other, each of these companies has to tweak their algor algorithms to like where everything's just crazier and more like viral insanity, like all the bad things they might dial up to 11 because they have to beat out you know, Facebook yellow, Facebook green. So I'm not sure which of the problems breaking them up addresses, unless your main problem is just, I don't like how much money they have. There aren't too many issues that Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden all agree on, but here's one. They all think the government should repeal something you mentioned earlier called Section 230. Of all the ideas to do something about big tech, repealing Section 230 is the very worst. If I could convince everyone of just one idea from my book, it would be, please do not touch Section 230. So this is the statute that crafts liability protections for online platforms. And it dates so, all the way back to the 90s, right? Right. It's what allows you to post at will on Facebook because... Facebook cannot be sued for your speech. If I libel someone, if I defame someone, I can, on Facebook, uh, in a, like a comment or something or a post, I can be sued. Facebook cannot be sued. But if Same I write a letter to a, to a newspaper and that defames somebody, the newspaper can be sued, right? Um, probably. I'm not sure how letters to the editor works that you, but certainly if you write a column in the newspaper, yes, the newspaper yeah, can be sued. That, that seems really unfair that, that Facebook's allowed to do everything it wants and, and publications aren't. Uh, it might be unfair. I would, I would fix the fairness probably by extending greater liability protection to traditional publishers as well. What would happen if you took away the liability protection is that now social media sites would not be able to let you post at will. So all of the conservatives who want to get rid of Section 230 like the immediate result would be all of their speeches nuked uh, because the speech that, that these sites would be most afraid of would be provocative speech because they'd be worried about legal liability. So, so 
the immediate effect of getting rid of Section 230 would be a vast silencing across the far reaches of the internet. It's an unthinkable disaster. I can't believe so many people on both sides of the aisle like this idea. It is really bad. And what about some sort of fact-checking association or agency or, or body that would help tech companies identify lies? Well, I mean, you get into the, I don't mind if they do that, you know, privately. And, and in fact, they have. Facebook has in, ha, works with uh, certain fact-checking agencies, organizations. Now, I think those agencies and organizations are, are often just as biased as the information they are fact-checking. So then we get into the, well, who fact-checks the fact-checkers? Fact-checking is a very partisan enterprise, and I have a, a lot of quarrels with the people who do it. Um, obviously, the government doing this is a, is a non-starter. That, that would be prohibited, just kind of straight up prohibited by the First Amendment, right? People tend to think that businesses resist regulation, but sometimes the biggest players in an industry basically say, oh, uh, please don't throw me in that briar patch. But if you do... <laughs> You know, right. we can handle it. And yeah, Facebook has made some very sympathetic noises about having their industry more regulated. Explain what they're up to. Yeah, Facebook has basically said, well, as long as you're throwing Twitter in the briar patch as well, um, we have thicker skin than they do. So uh, they have come out in favor of some theoretical tweaks to Section 230 that they would inevitably steer to their own benefit. They employ far more moderators than Twitter does. They can afford to, to employ more moderators than Twitter does. So if you have some tweak that forces the companies to do more moderation because the government's telling them to do that or because they have greater liability of uh, a risk, uh, you're going to benefit Facebook over Twitter because Twitter can't afford to do any of that. So that, which is why Twitter has opposed this tweak and Facebook supports it. Uh, another reform a lot of people support is um, setting some rules on how tech companies can use the data they collect on all of us. Um, could we restrict the selling of that data to second or third parties? I, I worry about what data they're collecting and sharing with the government, with law enforcement. I mean, this is falling into very kind of traditional liberal and libertarian privacy concerns, NSA type stuff. I share all of that. Some of this is just like, it's too late. Um, they collect information on everything you do. And, and look, that is their business model. They are selling advertisers a portrait of you in order to share with you more relevant advertisements. So much of just the random ads you see on television are relevant. But on Facebook, I see ads for things I might actually buy. Clothes, board games, other things. Um, Dungeons and Dragons paraphernalia. Are there some regulatory tweaks that you would support or you think are worth investigating? Uh, I, I think it is fine to prioritize national security and nonviolence, and it is fine to compel the platforms to take down violent content or, or terrorism or um, things of that nature. Probably the area where I am most sympathetic to the idea that something ought to be done is a kind of obscure topic, but I think an important one. The sharing of sensitive pictures, videos that are very personal, pornographic even. Uh, revenge porn is a category of mistreatment of harassment of people online where you have uh, pictures of people and, and, and you, know, you post them without their permission. And right now the platforms will usually take them down but there have been lawsuits and cases where at some point they, the platform says, you know what, Section 230 protects us from this. We don't have to take it down. Sorry. Um, and I'm not satisfied by that. 
I, I think it could operate sort of like copyright infringement. You get a takedown notice and then the platforms, I, I think they should be obligated, I think, to take down that kind of content uh, if it's been posted without the user's permission. Not every problem needs to be solved by the federal government. And we like when we look at solutions on how do we fix it to sort of start as local as possible. What are some kind of grassroots things people can do to address some of these concerns they have about the power of, of social media? There are a lot of libertarians that are smarter than I am that think um, the blockchain is the future of the internet and it will be decentralized and it will be much better. And I am not an ex I'm not even a cursory informed person on these technologies, but a lot of the people I work with at Reason really do believe this is the future and it would address a lot of the concerns. So that's one. The other is just like have faith that something will come along in a, in a short period of time. There's been so much transformation in the tech, in the social media, internet service space in a, in a relatively short amount of time. Um, I think it's very short-sighted to say, well, these companies are entrenched. They'll never face any real competition. That seems, I don't know about that. I, I, I don't find that persuasive. In fact, Facebook honestly looks kind of weak. It will never again be popular, I don't think, with young people, which is which is kryptonite. That's what it what it it wants young users because those are attractive to advertisers. It is it's boomer book. It's a site for old people. But Robbie, it's it's not Facebook anymore. It's it's Meta. <laughs> <laughs> that embarrassing oh that video was the most cringy and I like to stick up for Mark Zuckerberg, but that was so embarrassing. This does not look like a healthy company, but I have to think its best days are behind us. And we might, maybe it'll be a decade from now, maybe two decades from now, we'll say, whatever happened to Facebook? Oh, yeah. Remember when everybody was freaked out about that? Robbie Suave, thanks very much. Before you go, I got to ask you that, about that Facebook site for, uh, for board game players that you're part of. Uh, so not a not a Facebook. It's just uh, it's a the the game is called Dominion. It's a wonderful uh, card game similar to Magic the Gathering uh, that I've been playing for more than a decade. And there's a forums about it, DominionStrategyForum.com, where we play all sorts of games. And I've been contributing there for years and years and years. I've met some of my best friends there. You know, we 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 don't talk about all the ways that social. We're having this conversation in part because of a, a social media adjacent technological development. It's really good. Let's not. You know, let's not do that thing where we all say, oh, the past was so much better. Was it? Was it really? I don't even go back to waiting for my dial up connection to, uh, you know, to connect me to the Internet and, and have much more limited conversations. It's, it's, it's better now, warts and all. Thank you, Robbie Suave. And now our recommendation. Richard, you said you have a surprise for me. Yeah, because the show I'm going to recommend, it's a TV show, it's on the History Channel, and it's called The Engineering That Built the World. And Jim, you play a starring role. You're one of the experts that they consulted. Uh, this show is just fascinating. I've watched two of them so far. There are a bunch of episodes rolling out. Uh, one was on the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. The other one was on the Panama Canal. Um, I am no engineer, and I'm not even normally interested in engineering topics. I only watch this because you, my friend, are on it. But I was surprised. It's, it, th these are great stories. Anybody who's marginally interested in history uh, or even the history of business should take a look because th these are good stories. 
Robbie Suave, um, with political leanings closer to yours than, than mine, I'm less skeptical than Robbie is and probably than you are to at least some action by by Congress, uh, at the very least to act as a bully pulpit, to shine a light on uh, some of what's going on with, with Facebook and with, with these other companies. They are huge and powerful influences in our lives. They do deserve to be at least investigated, even if we don't decide to have uh, huge changes in federal legislation. I could not disagree with you more on on the idea that Congress should be a bully pulpit where if some business is doing something they they look at scants at, but they can't find any way that it breaks the law. They just call in the executives and yell at them. I mean, that's basically what a lot of these hearings have been. I think examining the issues is there there's definitely a place for that. But I don't I do not think it is becoming of a major democracy devoted to free speech and individual liberty and everything else to to have these uh, these circuses where, you know, executives are brought up to Capitol Hill to be, uh, you know, performatively yelled at. I'm not in favor of the bully pulpit thing. These are not some businesses. These uh, big technology is wrought some of the biggest social and political and cultural changes in our society in many, many decades. And I think it's right and proper that there be public hearings. And yes, sometimes those public hearings, uh, there, there are things that are said by showboaters that shouldn't be. That's the nature of our noisy, messy democracy. I do think there should be more transparency. And there is a role for Congress here. If there's a way to get more transparency in things that are hidden, I mean, I'm in favor of that in principle. I don't see any evidence that any of these uh, hearings have done anything like that. Yes, I'm more on the libertarian, conservative-ish end of the spectrum. Um, and one thing that I think is is something that libertarians in particular have noticed over the years is anytime you have both the right and the left all united, that something's a huge issue and something big has to be done right now and let's go and quickly pass this bill, that's when you should be trying to put on the brakes because more often than not, that whatever they're all agreed on is going to make the problem worse. <laughs> We're disagreeing a lot, but I mean, that's what should be going on with climate change. The left and the right should be deeply concerned by, by what's going on. And if both of them united and called for action by the government to help deal with this, then I'd be largely in favor of it. So I don't accept that just because both sides are bothered by something that we shouldn't do anything. The rise of the Soviet Union after World War II was something both the left at, or the moderate left and the right agreed on, and there was action was taken. There are areas in which we need our government to take action, and bipartisan legislation is great. But when laws are passed in an atmosphere of panic, and moral outrage, I think they tend to be bad laws. I would go back to the Patriot Act. It was passed overwhelmingly by both houses of, of Congress, both parties. It was only the libertarians on the edge saying, hey, let's be careful. Some of these expansions of federal power to spy on citizens could be used in, in some ways that are pretty dangerous. And I think that that has been borne out. So, and I'm a huge critic of the social media companies myself. So I'm not defending them, but I'm saying, let's make sure we don't break them down and have them replaced with something worse. A social media 
an internet culture that is policed and regulated by the government would be the worst of all possible worlds from my point of view. I guess what you call panic and moral outrage, I call concern. Uh, and I think that we've had enough time with what's been going on on social media and the internet uh, for there to be uh, a lot of concern about the impact on our democracy, the impact on our teenagers, uh, the impact on our culture. And I do think that we should be considering this and, and the way we do it in our democracy is through Congress. And uh, so I favor a more active role, I guess, than you do. Yeah, I don't. But that's the point of how do we fix it? We get to debate these things and <laughs> and uh, hopefully, you know, somewhere down the road, we'll, we will come to some, uh, some understanding. If not, then the discussion goes on. Agreed. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. How Do We Fix It is produced by Miranda Schaefer. We are a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.